you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Genesis. We come to Genesis chapter 41. I'm going to read the first half of the chapter up through verse 36. Lend your attention, this is God's word. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent, and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is, what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, 
and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 8. Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew record a series of miracles uh, wherein our Lord establishes not only is he an authority, unlike the world has ever seen in terms of his teaching, um, but it is an authority that is demonstrated also in his works, his deeds. Uh, he is authorized. He is an authority like no other in both word and act. We come to the second of these mighty acts, starting in verse 5 of chapter 8. This is God's word. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And join me in prayer as we ask his blessing on his word. Father, these are uh, wonders to behold. Um, how astonishing, Lord, that sickness, illness, affliction uh, must go and come at the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. How astonishing, Lord, that uh, you welcome Gentiles, 
those who are far off. Indeed, for this very purpose, Christ has come to gather from every tribe and tongue and nation of people to declare your excellencies, from Jew and Greek alike, gathered in the true offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, these things are wonderful. We hear them rehearsed. We've perhaps heard them rehearsed since we were babies. Uh, But uh, astonish us afresh, Lord, for they are wonderful to behold. And that we are made the recipients, Lord, is a wonder upon a wonder. And so we ask that you would attend your word with the working of your spirit, that you would attend my words, Lord, which go forth with that power, which rightly belongs to the Son and which he is pleased to use through servants now in this economy of grace to gather and to strengthen, to refresh and to encourage, to rebuke and to correct. Father, you are doing these things as your word ensures us and so we pray that you would do them and that you would give us the eyes of faith to know that you are doing them. And for this we ask in Christ's name, amen. We really meet two figures in this passage. The exchange takes place between two men. We see a centurion and we see the Christ. And we have much to learn from both of their words and their actions. The first is an astonishing believer. And the second is an astonished Lord. First, the astonishing believer, the centurion supplicant. Look at verses five through seven. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Who is a centurion? Uh, The shock of this passage partly trades upon us understanding who and what a centurion is. Uh, A centurion is a Gentile. Uh, A centurion is not a Jew. Uh, Would have been a foreigner with respect to Israel, but one who was very much entrenched in the land. Uh, He's a soldier, uh, rather a commander of 80 soldiers, or so the books say. A a century was the smallest division within a Roman legion. But in any case, this man evokes the power of empire. This man has the power of empire at his disposal. This man is an emblem of that power. For Jews at the time in Israel, it would have been a very visible and present emblem of that massive power weighing heavily upon them. So we're made to feel that this is an unusual supplicant. (laughs) This is a strange follower. That's partly why the Lord responds as he does when he gives such an incredible profession of faith. Matthew's already prepared us to find very unlikely worshipers bowing before the Christ. It's our favorite story. It's my favorite story, Matthew 2, 
where we meet magicians. Magicians from the east. We heard about them this morning in God's kind providence. Pharaoh, troubled. Who does he summon? He summons magicians. Moses met them previously. Moses and Aaron, well, not previously, with later. Moses and Aaron go toe-to-toe with Egyptians. Nebuchadnezzar has Egyptian magicians. These figures of wisdom, these depositories of understanding who attend foreign kings who are able to advise him. Matthew says these are the ones who came and bowed to the Christ while his own people, the King Herod, scrambled to kill the child and the religious leaders wanted nothing to do with him. Matthew's provided us already with a certain anticipation that some very unusual worshipers are going to come to know and to bow before the true and living God. If magicians from the east were unlikely, this centurion is just as unlikely. I mean, consider this from the point of view of Jesus' contemporaries and potentially from the recipients of Matthew's gospel. In both cases, Rome is the oppressor. Their military might is their problem. Think about common notions of what the Jewish Messiah was going to do. It was going to be a military victory. That was the common popular notion that a militaristic Messiah was going to come and he was going to kill guys like this. Think about that. Not only does Jesus draw near to a leper, here he welcomes public enemy number one. This would have been an astonishing supplicant. A man full of might, full of strength, full of of power. There's a chance that Matthew's gospel was written in the late 60s AD. If you know anything about ancient history, you know that the first Jewish war took place from 67 to 70 AD. This book is circulating at a time when Israel is at war with Rome with this guy. And here Jesus welcomes him. How wonderful are God's ways. This is an astonishing follower of Christ here. It reminds us that God delights to save the unlikely, beloved. God delights to flip our expectations on their head. God delights to put us into a position that he put Jonah in where he humbles us as he forces us to come to terms with how presumptive we've become, that somehow we've merited our inclusion, that somehow we've established ourselves as worthy of mercy, and we betray that fact by the indignation that we demonstrate when he would have the audacity to have mercy upon someone who's really a bad guy. (laughs) Forgetting that We're the bad guy. (laughs) Beloved, we're supposed to be astonished not that the centurion is saved. We're supposed to be astonished that we're saved, beloved. We've got a lot in common with this guy. As far as I know, none of you are the natural offspring of Abraham. (laughs) 
We've kind of lost the wonder at that simple fact, haven't we? Scripture doesn't lose the wonder at that. Scripture ushers us in. Paul picks up on that in Romans 11. Look, you're non-native branches. You've received an excellent kindness from the Lord, beloved. Let it result in the humility that Paul encourages us in. Don't go proud towards others. For you have received an astonishing mercy because God delights to save the unlikely. Some of us have personal histories that attest to this. You can look back at your own past and be like, what on earth am I doing here? This is not the organic unfolding of the course that I was on. <laughs> this is not the logical conclusion of the path that I plotted for myself. This is a rather dramatic turn of events. Here, delighting in Christ, delighting in God, hungering after his word. Beloved, make no mistake, all of his ways are intended to magnify his name. His goodness, his purposes, rich in grace and mercy. I had a bit of a surprise the last two weeks. I was speaking with an old friend from my time in the Peace Corps. This is 2007 to 2009. I hadn't seen some of these friends for 14 years. The one friend I keep in contact with told me that one of our closest friends was living in Minnesota. I said, oh, Minnesota, that's wild. I'll have to reach out. So I shoot an email to him and talk to him in 14 years. I said, I heard you're in Minnesota. I, I live in Minnesota. Where do you live? He lives 15 minutes away. We've been living 15 minutes away for the last three years. My surprise, what on earth are you doing here? What are you doing in Minneapolis? Move to St. Paul. <laughs> I was astonished to see him here. It was such an unlikely turn of events. Beloved, you should be astonished not to see others here, but to find yourself here. What am I doing here is the proper response to the purposes of God extended unto you in grace and mercy because we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Let's not lose astonishment at that fact, beloved. The fact that you're here, the fact that I'm here is due to the grace of God alone Beloved, because he delights to save the unlikely, because he is marvelous. It results in a certain amount of humility, doesn't it? That's the very thing that the centurion sets on display. Verse 8, and the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. They're weighty words. They're said in truth. There's nothing of affectation about this. Certainly not. Think about this. This man is one of the great ones in the land. This is an honor-shame culture, beloved. Society has told him that he is more valuable than most. He has more money than most. He has more possession than most. He has more power than most. He has more status than most. But where do we find him? As an emblem of empire, 
as an authorized agent of the greatest power on this earth. Think about how even just a little bit of power goes to our head. Even just a little bit of authority gets us puffed up. This man is a true authorized emblem of authority in the Roman Empire. Arguably the most powerful empire that the world has ever seen. And he comes to a traveling Jewish rabbi and he says, Lord. And you see in that just a standard address of respect and deference, but I think not given what he goes on to claim as possible from this man. Indeed, more than a man. Lord, I'm not worth, none of this is affected. None of this is putting on airs. This is a true encounter with the servant of God. This is a servant of Rome bowing to the servant of the true and living of God. Acknowledging the superiority of the kingdom of God to the kingdom of Rome. Indeed, all kingdoms of man. This is a remarkable statement. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. He was forced to confront with the reality of the limitations of his authority. Think about what's going on in this scene. This is a true servant of Rome with no small measure of power, and yet one who is under his care is suffering. And this man can do nothing. None of his accomplishments, none of his strength, None of his wealth, none of his powerful friends can bring his servant out of the throes of agony, can bring his servant away from the doorstep of death. Praise God. Praise God that he used this experience this helplessness in the face of his servant's suffering to shine a true light on all that the world holds valuable. Think about how our hearts clamor after everything that this man had. Power, prestige, wealth, status, and yet what did they serve him in the face of death? He was helpless to effect good for one under his charge. His authority meant nothing in the face of this invisible reality. Beloved, mark our folly in that we still clamor after the things that this man had, thinking that they provide a true refuge in the day of trouble. My children like to build forts put the cushions and the pillows and clever configurations and they drape it with sheets and then they hide and they yell, Dad, come and find us, thinking he'll never find me. <laughs> and I come in and I pretend like I can't find him and it's good fun. The hideout is suitable for the game. 
It serves their purposes in this land of make-believe. But if a day of trouble came, a hurricane, a thief in the night, the fort would be useless. It would be no refuge. It would be no hideout. It would be no safe haven. Beloved, this is what the things of the world are, and yet we are deceived time and time again, aren't we? That somehow wealth is going to save us when the day of trouble comes. Or that somehow now, in the face of international turmoil, just because we've got the strongest military that the world has ever had, we're safe. Mark, if you haven't taken some solace in that. Of course you have. Beloved, it is no true refuge. The greatest armies in the world have failed. Rome fell to barbarians. Assyria fell to Babylon. Babylon fell to Persia. What was seemingly invincible falls. There's only one true refuge. Praise God, this man saw it by God's grace. Have you seen it? What are you tempted to build as your child's fort? Accomplishment? Status? Wealth? A home? Friends? Family? Even they'll fail you their breath, beloved. And that breath fails. There's only one who doesn't fail. There's only one who's a true and sure refuge for the day of trouble. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Whether Jew or Greek, high or low, rich or poor, male or female, there's only one. He sees in him something different. A true authority that extends beyond the seen things into the unseen things. And he knows that a mere word from such a one will be sufficient. So he says in verse 9, For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And God's providence is this man was a part of this very fine-tuned authority structure. He learned something about authority. He knew that because he was under the authority of Caesar, the words that he spoke carried authority to those who were under him. His will was realized with a word. He could command bodies in space. Rome was very good at commanding bodies in space. Rome could coerce bodies to move in space. That was the power of Rome. That's the power of men. That's the power of the kingdom of man. But man can't affect the unseen things, beloved. What king is there who can tell sickness to go and it goes? Has there ever been a king that could influence the future one way or another as we read this morning. Pharaoh was subject to the unseen thing of the future, namely God's plans and purposes. All must bow before that authority. 
an authority that this man sees on display in Christ. Why? Because he's already teaching like one who had never appeared before on earth. A greater Solomon, a greater Moses. That's how seven ends. They were astonished because he was teaching like one with an authority that surpasses all others. But also this report has gone forth that he's laying hands on people and they're clean. He's telling demons to go and they go. He told Satan to leave and Satan put his tail between his legs and he left at the command of a carpenter's son. (laughs) Yeah, this isn't just an ordinary man. The centurion sees that he has a word that can affect not just bodies in space. He has a word that brings to pass his will in the unseen places, the hidden place of the heart, that seed of man where we're all sick with an illness that leads to death. Beloved, a word from this king heals at that level. Who does that? Who can do that? Who can make well at that level? I assure you, none but Christ, beloved. No one but the living and true God. My children know something about the authority that comes with a word. It charms me most nights. They far overestimate my ability to affect things by a word. The scene goes like this. I put my children to bed, and within three minutes, pandemonium breaks out. Mm. One of them comes down to narc on another one. (laughs) Say, so-and-so is singing. So-and-so is screaming. Can I tell them that you said to be quiet? It charms me every time. It's like, yeah, I wish that my word could affect that. I wish I didn't have to get up from Tolstoy right now to go and take care of what's going on. So I say, yeah, tell so-and-so I said to be quiet. And they march their little legs upstairs. You hear them yell, Dad said to be quiet. Let me tell you what doesn't happen next. Quiet. (laughs) My word does not affect that level of things. Would that my word could affect obedience. Have any of you found as parents that you're able with your word to change the inner place of the heart? I trust you haven't. We're to see something of ourselves in this centurion, even in his care for his servant, his helplessness in the face of what is a terrible ailment, one under his care, whom he has legitimate charge for, whom he is not able to do good by virtue of his inability. Isn't that an accurate glimpse? into our standing before our children? Make no mistake, we're called to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But can any of you impart true and saving faith? Any of you? You cannot, beloved. You You do not have the power of death in life. 
You do not have the power to bring about true and saving faith. And so even as we put our hand in diligence to raise our children to know and love Christ, make no mistake, morning and evening, beloved, plead to the only one who can bring true and saving faith. It's not just for our children, it's for our loved ones whom we care about, it's for our friends and our neighbors whom we would desire to see to true and saving faith. There's only one whose word can affect that level of reality and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he saw that and he believed. He acknowledged that Christ could do such things and he sought him to do such things. And Jesus is impressed. It's one of the more astonishing parts of this passage. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled and said, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. What would cause you to marvel? I can only think of a few instances in my life where I've actually sort of been awestruck, sort of arrested. We don't do great with these sorts of words. We use words like awesome and amazing and marvelous, like when you have a good sandwich. <laughs> this is a marvelous sandwich. It's like, well, no, it's a good sandwich. This is a marvelous bottle of wine. It's like, well, yeah, probably. Tell me more. <laughs> we inflate words and... Here, Jesus marvels. He says, this is marvelous. There's another way. This is marvelous. He's astonished. He's arrested. A good avenue into what this word means comes just later in this chapter. Let me tell you what this word means. This word means that frame of soul which would erupt if you were to see a storm on a sea stop at the word of a man. Because that's what the disciples do when Jesus tells the winds and the waves to be quiet. It says, and they marveled and said, what manner of man is this? Maybe they had children and they had experienced similar limitations to their word that I had experienced with limitations. I can't even get my kids to be quiet. This man tells the waves to be quiet. This isn't an ordinary man. Men can't even affect quiet in their home. This man affects quiet on the ocean. This isn't an ordinary man. This is marvelous. Jesus marvels at faith. That's what he marvels at, isn't it? And Jesus marveled, saying, I haven't seen such, I've never seen such faith like this. What's marvelous about faith? It magnifies God, and it places man in his proper posture before him. It says, your word is true. Everything you say is true. You are exactly who you say you are, even though my experience often tells me otherwise. You do exactly what you say you do, even though my experience often tells me otherwise. To exalt 
elevate, magnify God's word to that of God's son to that level. These kings of earth think they're in charge. They think they're going to realize their tiny wills for power and immortality. Your word tells me you're in charge. I believe it. It's hard to see. It's, it's hard to see. Is it not hard to see? Is it not easy? Do you just close your eyes? It's hard to see. But God's word is plain. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. And God's church closes her eyes, listens to the word, and says, yes and amen. And Jesus says, that's marvelous. That's marvelous, beloved. Be encouraged. You're probably not going to accomplish much in your lifetime. But if you have true and saving faith, you possess a reality that causes the king of glory to say, marvelous. That's marvelous. It's a beautiful place to be, isn't it? If you have true and saving faith, beloved, you possess a wonder within your chest that surpasses the wonder of creation. For true and saving faith is the breath of new creation. The greatest wonder God has ever worked. And Jesus humbles to close this passage with verses 11 and 12. He seizes upon this occasion of true and saving faith coming from the unlikeliest of servants, coming from one who did not possess the covenants, who did not possess the promises, who was far off, to use the language of Paul in Ephesians 2, and yet even with the little bit that he possessed, he said, God's word is true. God's Christ is who he says he is. He can do exactly what he desires to do because he possesses all authority. Jesus marvels, and then he humbles and he teaches in verses 11 and 12 the absolute necessity of true and saving faith he says i tell you many will come from east and west and recline at table with abraham isaac and jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth if God in his kindness facilitated in the heart of a centurion a recognition that his external benefits amounted to nothing before the reality of death, nothing before the king of heaven and earth, here he presses upon those with external benefits with reference to religion. He says you cannot rest in your natural descendancy from Abraham. John the Baptist has already said this. It says, do not presume to say that we have Abraham as our father. God is able to raise up from stones like centurions true sons. What he's teaching here is plain, is it not? He pictures the future as a banquet. This was a common image for blessedness. It suits me as one who enjoys wine. <laughs> uses fine wine, this idea, it's what we celebrate each time at the table. I'll take up this cup with you at a feast unlike any you could imagine. 
That's what the images here and here he profiles Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs being true participants in this coming feast. Why? Not because Isaac was descended from Abraham, not because Jacob was descended from Abraham, but because they saw the day of Christ and they rejoiced. Because they had true and saving faith. Jesus says nothing more than what Isaiah says. That on that day, those who come to this banquet are not coming because of any specific nation or ethnicity. Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. You can hear it there. All nations, all peoples, all nations, all peoples. This goes back to the promise of Abraham. In you, in your offspring, all nations shall be blessed. He's saying that the way into the kingdom of blessedness is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else ushers in, beloved. It's a humbling word for us too, isn't it? I don't care if you're a 16th century descendant to a Huguenot. (laughs) I don't care if you can claim Bullinger in your family tree. It doesn't matter At the end of the day, external participation in a Christian family, in a Christian culture, whatever that means. What matters, beloved? What matters is that we take our position next to our centurion brother, falling on our faces, saying the accolades that the world gives mean nothing that I can't rest in whose child I am. The only thing that counts for anything in terms of eternity is, do I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I uttered in truth my yes and amen to the Savior of the world who says you are a sinner And I am a great Savior, beloved. Come, take up the cup in celebration of the victory that I've won. It's a glorious portrait, isn't it? The fullness of life. This is not a bare provision that God makes in that passage of Isaiah. Aged food, aged wine, and not just that, the gift of swallowing death. Where do we see this taking place? Where do we see such a glorious exchange? Such a remarkable arrangement of portions. Wine, food for those guests. And the Lord's portion is what? 
He swallows death. We wine and rich food. He eats death. Where does that take place, beloved? Where do we have presented for us? Where's the mountain, beloved? It's Calvary and Zion. It's what we celebrate week in and week out now by faith, beloved. The same faith the centurion put on display that says yes and amen. The portion of death should have been mine. The portion of life belongs to you and you alone. And yet you've taken my portion. You've given me your portion. It doesn't feel like that all the time. Sometimes it still feels like sin is my portion. Sometimes it still feels like death is my portion. But in true and saving faith, I declare that your word trumps my perception. Your word trumps my experience. The one whom you pardon is pardoned. The one whom you welcome is welcomed. The one to whom you say live is living because you have all authority in heaven and on earth. Beloved, we mark this glorious exchange every week as we come to this table. We taste of this feast now by faith. But make no mistake, it's true participation. Just because we utter our yes and amen to the unseen things that we truly are participants in this invisible kingdom where eternal life is dispensed, just because those things boggle the mind, defy the sense perceptions, doesn't mean it's not true. That which we enjoy by faith now, peace with God, a welcome at the table, the dawning of life, it's the very thing we'll enjoy in full when we see the very things that we now believe. Have you believed, beloved? If you haven't believed, run to this one who is a true refuge. If you do believe, beloved, continue to pray. Increase my faith. Strengthen me day by day in the assurance that your word is true, that your king is true, and that I am yours in faith and in faith alone. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, your word is marvelous to hear. Strengthen us as we receive of it. Cause it to meet with true faith in our hearts that life bursts forth, Lord, to the praise of your glorious grace. These things we ask in Christ's name, amen.